This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hi, I'm Blake Chastain, and this is Powers and Principalities. This show focuses on the systems and institutions that prop up white evangelical power and influence in America and the world. Season one is focused on white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. This is episode eight. My guest today is Dr. Anthea Butler, Associate Professor of Religion and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the upcoming book, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. In this conversation, we talk about Dr. Butler's background, her role as a public intellectual and how scholars operate in the media, her upcoming book on racism and white evangelicalism, and many of the top news stories over the past several months. It's a great conversation and we'll get right to it. If you'd like to support the show, please do so by telling people about it, leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, and by signing up for a paid subscription to my Substack newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.com. Listeners can get 25% off a subscription by visiting the link in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at brchastain and on Instagram at brchastain underscore. Without further ado, let's get to this conversation. My guest today is Dr. Anthea Butler, Associate Professor of Religion and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the upcoming book, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Dr. Butler, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm happy to be here, Blake. Thanks for coming on. I'm really happy we were able to connect before we sort of dive into this endless news cycle that we're in the midst of here in the run-up to the November election. I want to just hear a little bit about your background as a scholar. Uh, and what your particular interests interests are academically as they relate to religion, especially here in America. Yeah, I, I, this is interesting because I always try to figure out how I'm going to describe myself because it's a it's sort of a conundrum. But I'm going to describe myself this way. Um, I was trained as an African American religious history person, but also as an Americanist. Did my PhD in Vanderbilt, but my uh, experience of evangelicalism was at Fuller Seminary, where I did a master's degree before doing my PhD. So that that'll sort of set the tone for for everything else. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I started off like a regular academic. I started off, you know, writing a history book. My first book was about uh, African-American women in the Church of God in Christ, which was women in Church of God in Christ making a sanctified world. But then I got, um, I started doing something else and it actually happened with Katrina. And I started writing in the public and I I wrote a piece for The Revealer, which was run by Jeff Charlotte back then, which is a name that everybody probably knows. And um, I did a piece about finding versus looting. Basically, there was a thing about this white couple who were going into a store to get some bread during the flooding of Katrina. And then there was another picture of black people going in the same store. They're like looting. And so I wrote this whole piece about, you know, how America is awful. And then George Bush had been in front of the um, church with that stupid photo op that he did. A little bit like, you know, Trump's photo op Mm -hmm. with the Bible, but except it was in New York, New Orleans. And that kind of got me started on writing 
writing in, you know, for public. And I wrote for religion dispatches for a long time, but then I started writing for other publications like the guardian and, you know, New York times and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so I would probably say now that I, I am an academic, but I'm an academic who's interested in a, a public person. I really am somebody who's front, front facing with my scholarship to the public and not just the academy. Yeah. And I think that's that's probably the difference. So I've been writing a lot about, obviously, about race and religion and, and politics. And those are my interests. And that's especially the interest of this book that I have coming out this coming March. Right. What has your experience been um, in the last 15 years of occupying that sort of public intellectual space? It seems to be something that w- has sort of been lost within, at least within American media. I think maybe in other parts of the world, it still is yeah. something that, that has been maintained, but it hasn't necessarily been so. It's it's really been interesting because I think, you know, the advent of Twitter really, really helped a lot, but it also really hurt a lot because I got attacked a lot and all those kinds of things. I think that the Academy wants to do this, but they're really, they haven't been ready as much as they should have been. And now with, you know, being locked up because of COVID and everything, now they're re- I think the Academy is realizing you have to reach out to the public. You have to be online. You've got to be, you know, have a platform someplace. And so the things like you're doing with, you know, podcasts, you know, writing, blogging, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I say blogging, but that's not really quite the whole thing that people are doing now. Obviously, I, I, I kind of put that back in the background a little bit. I think that it's really, it's really changed. And I think that, you know, as long as COVID keeps going, we're going to have to think about new ways of being. And, you know, and I, I really think that, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but I'm going to say it this way. I was ahead of my time Mm -hmm. and I paid a price for that, but I think I've been proven right in the long run that, you know, that kind of public engagement alongside your scholarship is really important and no more, especially so now as we come up to this election or even in the last four years with, with Trump, where we've realized that, you know, people who weren't paying attention to Pentecostals all, all of a sudden had to pay attention to them. They had to pay attention to these kind of D-list, you know, prosperity gospel people. They didn't know who they were. And, you know, people like me or Sarah Posner and others knew who they were, but nobody was paying attention to that. So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm built for now. I really am. But I also think that the, the universities and colleges still aren't ready yet. And, you know, that's fine. And I think that's such an interesting space where projects like this one and like Straight White American Jesus try to bridge that gap between all the different things that happen within academia and all these information that's available that just somehow still, it comes as a surprise to lots of people when some of these facts have been known for decades in academia. How do you feel about that disconnect and the, the way in which you operate and trying to, you know, connect these two different audiences? You know, I, I'm going to say it this way. People may may find this strange to say, but I think, you know, for, for African-American scholars and scholars of African descent, we've always had to be connected to the public because, you know, whether racism or, you know, certain kinds of issues in the community made us have to be, you know, out there. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, I've known Eddie Glaude for a long time, for instance, and, you know, I can see him on MSNBC now, but I knew him when he was doing, the, you know, all the Black stuff in the contract with Black America. And that was like 10 or 15 years ago with Tavis Smiley and all this and white people didn't know anything about that, but black people certainly did. And so I think that, you know, 
we have occupied the space, but I think other people are realizing that they need to occupy that space too. The question is, is will scholars now be able to retrain themselves? And that's the bigger question, because I think, you know, there was a moment, I don't know how long you've been on Twitter. I've been on Twitter actually and on another account since 2008, and then this account that I'm on now since 2010. So it's been 10 years. And I think that, you know, in 10 years, what I realized it connected me to so many different people out in the news media that, you know, I know, you know, people who are writing for the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Guardian, or, or I know people at television stations, I mean, people call me for things. And I worked on that for a long time. And I think people see it as like, oh, I can just go do that and be easy. But I'm like, uh, uh, uh. I've been doing this for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And so now it's a different, it's a different kind of ball game for the people who sort of expect that it's going to happen for them overnight. And it doesn't work that way. Yeah. One of the things that you said was these D-listers that had this outsized impact or unrealized impact on the 2016 election. Uh, do you think that things like social media make that more possible? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, who knew about Daryl or um, I'm forgetting his other the guy that used to be there with him that opened up as an African-American pastor who basically, you know, was doing like TV shows and stuff. And then he, he pulled back and realized that it was like the small room with like maybe five people in it, you know, mm -hmm. and, and they, they had a good run at the beginning. Paula White. I mean, come on, who would ever thought Paula White was going to be up there giving a prayer at the inauguration in 2017. Right. But I mean, Paula White has known Trump since 2003, 2004, where she was kind of, you know, in a weird place trying to re recast her own sort of career that she had. And so it, it, you know, I think the thing is, is that people just didn't realize all of these connections. And, and you know, I, I'm picking on 2016, but I could go back to 2008 where people just didn't realize who Sarah Palin was. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't get it. And, and so once you start, when you start looking at the ways in which the media missed the story and the academy actually missed the story too because they didn't know how to tell it or they weren't paying attention to those of us who were really talking about it, you, you can see how knowledge gets, you know, locked up in these silos or doesn't get at all or, or the people who have that knowledge don't get to be out front like they should be. Right. I remember seeing a, a take on Twitter. Uh, it was about QAnon and how policy wonks, policy media journalists mm -hmm. missed it. Tech reporters were the ones that sort of saw the influence. Yeah. I wanted to chime in. It was someone I never really interacted with, but the other people I wanted to chime in and say was like, religion scholars could see this happening too. Yeah, we could see it too. I mean, because we were the ones who were saying, well, you know, of course, if you know, Trump is this cult-like figure, then of course he's going to draw people to him. And, you know, I, I'm thinking today just came out um, an article by uh, Jeff Charlotte. I just put it, I gave it to you. That was about QAnon because he's been watching, you know, and going to some of the rallies before COVID and all of this. And so QAnon is just a base, is, is a buildup to me of, you know, the cult-like status of Trump. And you have to have your your hero, your, your your the person who's out there in front has to have some kind of story around him. And QAnon gives Trump a story that is more than just, it's a supernatural story for Trump. It's a supernatural, you know, conspiracy theory story, obviously, but it's mm -hmm. a supernatural story. Well, let's talk about your upcoming book for a few minutes, too, before we dive into this, again, relentless news cycle that, that we find ourselves in. Could you talk a little bit about uh, your book and, and what it's going to explore? Yeah, sure. Um, 
white evangelical racism is a, is a story that I think that we've all sort of danced around, but we haven't really talked about. And that is the racism that is inherent in evangelicalism and how it shows up in whiteness. And the reason why I wanted to do this book was a couple of reasons. There were lots of pieces that came out since the Trump administration and everybody trying to figure out why evangelicals for Donald Trump, he's the worst person. He doesn't have any morals. He doesn't have this, he doesn't have that. I'm like, that's not the question. The question really is, is that what makes this marriage work? And what makes the marriage work is that Donald Trump is a white supremacist and evangelicals like white supremacy. And that's kind of a harsh way to put it, but it's really true. And so one of the things that I wanted to do as a historian is to explore this, especially as an American religious historian for the 19th to 21st century. So the way that the book is set up is that this is a history and we're not so much dealing with Trump, we're dealing with the history of evangelicalism, but in a very different way than looking at, you know, Bevan Hill's quadrilateral or Mark Knoll's history or Thomas Kidd's history or George Marsden's history or Grant Wacker's history. We're going to look at the history of race and evangelicalism. And that history is not a good one. And so I start up with slavery and talking about Christian justifications for slavery, missions, the um, participation of evangelicals in lynching, I talk about um, Billy Graham and Billy Graham's, you know, racial issues because he has some. And I think that people tend to think of him as, oh, he just liked everybody. And I'm like, uh, that's not true. And uh, we go all the way through up to and right up to Donald Trump. And so this history looks at a couple of things. One is it's about racism, but it's also about the ways in which morality was used by evangelicals to promote a kind of racial ideal that is whiteness. And, you know, as I like to tell people is I've spent time in evangelicalism myself. And one of the things that always stood out to me was that anybody who entered in had to really leave themselves at the door and become sort of take on a certain kind of whiteness, no matter what color you are, what kind of ethnicity you are. And that was always very troublesome to me because there were points in which you just couldn't really be yourself because you were expected to blend in. You were expected to behave a certain way. You were expected to sing a certain way. You were expected to vote a certain way if we're talking about from the 80s forward. And so I think what the book does is really shed a light on that and actually really comes, you know, I'm coming straight, as we would say, for the next of everybody who's written these books about evangelicalism, who's sort of kind of not wanted to deal with race I mean, I keep thinking about Francis Fitzgerald's book on evangelicalism, and there's not anything about race in it. I mean, this woman wrote over 500 pages. It's nothing about race. And I'm like, you would just think that evangelicals are nothing but white. And that is not the case. Mm. Somehow, even in 2020, these communities, evangelical communities, struggle to even come to terms with or acknowledge. When you went about writing this book, is that the type of audience that you're hoping to? Well, yeah, I, I hope they do read it. I, I do. But I wanted to also reach out to a broader audience and, and say, you know, for the American public that's been trying to figure out, well, what the heck is it with these people anyway? That they would be able to see it in a different light and have something that was accessible to them and something that speaks to the political. Because I think what has happened is that you know, evangelicals have been, you know, intensely involved in politics. But when they write about themselves, they don't want to write about it that way. 
And I want to point to that and say, no, politics and race have been really important for you all. That's how you've gotten your power. It's how you've had your authority. And this is how you've upheld a certain kind of evangelical patriarchy and masculinity. And I think that's really important for people to see. And the, at the very end of the book, you know, the conclusion, there's a little piece in there directed to evangelicals specifically. I think it'll be interesting to mm-hmm. see how people receive that. Right. And I'm not asking that just because I don't I don't think that that audience needs to be coddled or that sort of thing. Oh, I'm I mean, not coddling have... them. <laughs> don't worry. They're going to be really angry at me. I promise you. Right. And I mean, that's 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 the that's the proper way to approach a group that has wielded so much power and done so much damage, even within this administration, let alone the history of racism that that um, is still struggling to even be recognized within those communities themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the issue for them is also this, you know, the focus in on, on individualism, you know, racism is an individual sin. It's not a corporate sin. It's not structural sin. And so for them, you know, you can say, well, you know, if we talk about the racial reconciliation things of the 90s, we've already done that. We've already said we're sorry. We're the Southern Baptists. We've done all these statements. And the statements belie what what actually happens in, you know, in practice. And I think that it's really important. So when we saw all these people sort of amassing around Trump, you know, over 80% of the voters in the in the 2016 election. And I'm, I imagine he's going to lose 10 points off of this election, but he's not going to lose that many because you're still going to have them voting for him. I mean, it's it, it's just appalling, honestly, to think about the ways in which they cling to this white Jesus. And this white Jesus sort of gives them the imprimatur to be able to continue to believe in someone who is less, you know, who's not moral, who is, you know, immoral, who's amoral, maybe even if we want to put it that way and and to continue to buy into certain kinds of things where they can you know hide behind Jesus and say well I love everybody no no you don't you don't love everybody you you don't your behavior and your actions and the things that you believe in that you put your trust and your money in do not you know say that at all this seems to be another instance of the black community being aware of this for a very long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The black community has been aware of it. I mean, you know, if we want to even think about the ways in which we talk about evangelicalism, there's, there's been lots of black evangelicals. There still are lots of black evangelicals, but nobody ever talks about them, right? They're just hidden behind white evangelicalism. That's why the book title is white evangelical racism. Cause I don't want anybody to mistake who I'm talking about. I mean, I think this is a good place for me to bring up something that I bring up at the end of the book, but I think I, I really want to challenge this as well. Jim Wallace, you know, and and other evangelicals try to sort of get themselves out of the um, evangelicals look bad because of Trump crowd by saying, well, you know, evangelicals are more than just white. There are all these other colors. I'm like, you know what, back off. Because basically you didn't care about that before. Jim Wallace made his money off of being a progressive evangelical, right? But, you know, there's ways in which he's behaved that he's just been, you know, the same kind of paternalistic racism as the other evangelicals, right? And I know that's going to shock a whole bunch of people that I've said that about him, but I am saying that about him. And I'm also thinking that the ways in which you frame that, which is, oh, well, there's other colored evangelicals, right, is a way to get out of the inherent racism that is at the core of the movement, period. And I don't want anybody to get away from that. Right. And that is something that has been a deflection tactic for years Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of evangelicals who try to put a veneer of respectability upon the evangelical movement is that they often 
say like Barna Research Group or something might say evangelical by belief yeah. or lifeway uh-huh. research group. Yeah. And that that makes them be able to quantify and try to elide and hide the racial factor that's at the heart of this and, and what sets apart white evangelicalism from the other different evangelicalisms of color, including, as you said, there are black evangelicals. Lisa Sharon Harper is a very well-known example. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, too, it's also, you know, I'm going to throw in the people who do the numbers for a living. You talked about Barna, but, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, Christian Smith's book, you know, Divided by Faith, which was a very big book when it came came out. And there's been a whole sort of trajectory of people studying this stuff in sociology of religion. And I think that while that was important, it didn't really get to the deeper kinds of issues of race and racism that it needed to because it kind of hit the it hit the surface of that. And I think we look at the ways in which there's been several articles this election cycle about evangelicals of color leaving churches, whether that was been the you know Washington Post or the New York Times. And I think that what that's saying is, is that people have found themselves, you know, not having a home in these places and these big mega churches that don't want to deal with Black Lives Matter or don't want to deal with the kind of racial tension that we have in the country. They don't bring up things, you know, I'm thinking about Charleston and how that got dealt with as an issue of sin and not an issue of racism, right? And so this is the ways in which these churches, especially these large, you know, interracial mega churches want to, you know, pass by the racism that has happened is just to me another marketing tool to pretend that everybody's getting along like it's Noah's Ark or something like that when the reality is, is there are deep, you know, divisions that need to be addressed and that uh, play themselves out in the leadership of churches, play themselves out in the ways in which we try to look for, you know, other kinds of leadership in churches, whether we're talking about people in the front or we're talking about people who are teaching classes or doing things like that. And the ways in which, you know, there's a certain kind of expectation that evangelicals will vote politically, in, you know, for white male Protestants, basically, and not for anybody else. What are some examples of that that you've seen from this last several months of the run-up to the election, as well as the protest for racial justice and everything, where you've, where you've seen these sorts of dynamics at play, either in the pulpits, in the pews, or in our politics? Yeah. I mean, there was a great one where Lecrae met with um, Dan Cathy and um, Louis Giglio and Giglio said, you know, this is, a, you know, the, the white people received the blessing of race of uh, slavery. Right. And that was like a huge thing. And, you know, I ended up having a little exchange with Lecrae on, on Twitter about it. And I think that for me is like like a classic. You, you get Lecrae, who's the, you know, the gospel singer, you know, a rap guy, and you put him in between these two white dudes. And you already have set this up in a situation to where he's at a disadvantage, where he has to listen to two old white men talk about, you know, I'm sorry about racism. And what do you think about this? And he has to go along with them and he can't even say anything or he tries to say something when the horrible thing is said or the turd in the punch bowl got thrown, you know, and and that was it. And, you know, of course, Dan Cathy just kind of slunk off into the background and hopefully, you know, is hoping that everybody will still buy nuggets and, and French fries. Right. But, you know, the, the damage is done. Right. And, and I, I actually talk about this in the book. And I think that it's one of those kinds of situations. I mean, I can think about this recent um, 
a prayer thing that happened the same weekend that we had the, um, I would call it the Rose Garden Massacre, where everybody got sick and got coronavirus. <laughs> Franklin Graham and them are out there praying and, and all of this. And, you know, several people, I'm trying to remember, um, Greg Laurie got coronavirus at that event. I don't, I haven't really tracked to see who else got it. But these events that, you know, that have gathered around the president to kind of validate all the things that he's done for evangelicals, I see that as just another kind of slap in the face and a, you know, a sort of a assertion of how, look, he's a bad guy, but he's, he's done all the stuff that we want him to do. And he's been really great about that. And, and we're praying for the nation because we just don't want, you know, um, you know, Biden who has all these, you know, terrible people around him and Black Lives Matter to be overcome. And I think, you know, when I when I look at things like this and I see, you know, the black people who are complicit in this kind of stuff, you know, I, I just I, I, re- I really just I'm dismayed. I really am, because I just think that this is a you know, this is not what Christianity is for me. And I think that this this sort of white, uh, you know, Americanist Christianity that is married to nationalism has destroyed the witness of all of these people. Point blank. Yeah, that's. It's it's hard to see people um, become complicit in this particular administration because it is so blatantly power hungry. But as your book illustrates, I'm sure like these these sorts of things have always been problematic. But yeah. they're just in our face all the time now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, if we take somebody like a Billy Graham, who you know put himself up next to Eisenhower, to to Nixon, to all of these other people that he got to. I mean, sort of toward, you hear about him a little bit at the end saying, "I'm sorry." that I did all of this. But I mean, he was just part and parcel of all of this and and sort of opened up a door. We think about it being, you know, the religious right and the beginnings and Jerry Falwell and all that. But, you know, Billy Graham really has a lot to do with this and his proximity to power and the ways in which he, you know, sort of was like, well, you know, King's nice, but I don't really like him that much. And I didn't think that the, you know, I I have some quotes in the book about what he says about the March on Washington and all these things. He wanted gradualism. He is not some great racial leader. And so I tell people, you know, one of the most arresting things in that museum of the Bible is to walk into the 20th century section and see his picture on one side and MLK's picture on the other side they're facing each other. And I'm just like, this is not two people who are together and bringing the nation together. Billy Graham mm-hmm. has a certain idea about what he thinks this nation should be and how he fits in a perfect American dream of that. And Martin Luther King Jr. is asking for equality. And he's like, well, you know, you should just wait for it. And so to equate them together in that, you know, in that tableau to me is just it's so ahistorical. It's just stupid. Wow. I'd heard several details about that particular museum, but I had never heard that one. Yeah. That's pretty egregious. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's bad. It's bad. I'm sorry. That's that's a hard thing to, to segue from because because that, that particular museum is just so incredulous. And... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. You know, from the talking <laughs> Paul to everything else. Yes. It's, you know... It's a, it, yeah, it, you know, if you, uh, let me put it to you this way. When I went in, I did not pay, okay? I would have been <laughs> upset had I paid. And that's all I'm going to say about the Green family, because no, I do not shop at Hobby Lobby. They are part of the problem. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd like to turn um, and get your get your take on, on some of the events over the last several weeks 
just from the election and everything running up to it, what is your overall impression and the way in which primarily the Trump campaign, I, I would like to hear what you think about the faith outreach aspect of um, of the Biden campaign, but since the show is focused on Christian nationalism mm-hmm. uh, and white evangelicalism, what have you observed within the Trump campaign and other other campaigns from lobbying groups and other people that are trying to reelect Trump and do things like push the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett through? I actually think that that's the thing that they're most stuck on, to be honest. I think that they there's a sense in which in the Trump campaign that he figures these people are just coming back anyway. You know, I mean, what's what's been really interesting to me is the ways in which he's tried to attack Biden about his faith. Biden's going to take God away from you. Biden's going to do this. Biden's going to do that. I'm like, you know, dude, you're like really weak. You're bad at this because, you know, you could just go to some anti-Catholic stuff and you can't even get there. You just keep saying about how he's going to take God away from you and, and all of these things. And I'm like, that's not even a cogent argument for the people that are actually willing to vote for you. So I would say that the faith outreach for them has been in disarray, although I understand that they have taken out a six-figure um, ad buy for some of this stuff. Where, where the interesting battle has been for me is not from the campaign itself, it's been you know with Catholics. And, and I, here's a disclaimer that I'm on Catholics for Biden, um, one of the co-chairs, so I have to sort of say that up front. But what's been interesting to me is how you know, conservative Catholics and that priest in Wisconsin who basically said, you know, you're going to go to hell if you vote Democratic, right? And the bishops that have tried to sort of back him up and the ways in which, you know, um, middle of the road and liberal Catholics have pushed back on that. I think that's going to be one of the interesting uh, groups to look at when we co- when they come out of the ballot box, you know, after the election cycle to see how that's happened. I feel like the rest of it's been business as usual. It's the Paula White stuff. It's all the people who showed up, you know, in the Rose Garden for Amy Coney Barrett. Um, Republicans brought up her faith a lot more than Democrats did. Democrats really didn't bring it up at all and didn't touch it, which I think was the right thing to do. But I also think there's a sense in which Trump has lost his luster with all these people. And part of the reason why he's lost his luster is that he lost one of his biggest, you know, people. And that was Jerry Farwell Jr. I mean, you know, from, you know, unzipping his fly and sort of hanging out, you know, rather um, undecorously, let's put it like that, to all the stories that came out about him and his wife and um, the guy she was sleeping with. Um, this has messed him up because, you know, Jerry Falwell Jr. was a big surrogate for him. And not to have that voice is is a mess. And Franklin Graham is not the same kind of surrogate for him. And that's what's really interesting for me. So I think, honestly, I think that's a big hole. Nobody's really talked about that. But I think it's a big hole in the campaign for Trump. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that feels like 15 years ago at this point. I know, right? A hundred. It's like, yeah, a hundred, a hundred, honestly. Uh, I mean, how quickly, how quickly the news cycle goes and how often we're just primed to digest and try to understand the news in front of us. But that you're absolutely right. I mean, that was only August, August, August. that, that he um, lost his perch at, uh, at Liberty yeah. and all the things that, that he did there. Yeah. Uh, and that, yeah. And he was one of the earliest supporters of Trump and really helped to guide the evangelical voting block that direction. That's very true. I, what are your thoughts on people like Robert Jeffress or, as you said, Paula White and others? Do you think that they have the same 
type of sway that someone like well, yeah, Falwell did? Or well, is it- no, I mean, I think they have sway in terms of where they are. You know, Jeffress has sway because he's in Dallas, right? And he's going to need, he's going to need Texas. But Jeffress is, you know, he's on Fox all the time. Paula White isn't on like that. But I do think the thing that Paula White has is she might have some inroads into, you know, some of these black, you know, not big black mega churches, but black churches that are um, prosperity gospel churches. And so I think the people who tend to follow her or people like Daryl Scott and others who have been, you know, I call them the D list of pastors around Trump, right? They may get some traction in the communities that they're in. I know in Philadelphia, it's been maybe during sometime during the summer, they sent a couple of people over here to sort of do like some black Republican outreach, you know, in, in Northwest Philadelphia and everything. And I don't know how that went specifically, but I know that there was something that when some money was flowing, that that was happening. And the thing that stayed that didn't come out very much about the Trump campaign, but I think it's really interesting is that they were doing these events with people like Daryl Scott and others. And they were saying that, oh, you know, we're going to be in Atlanta. It's going to be black Republicans. You can win $5,000 or whatever. It was like just going to basically a big giant raffle where they were trying to get black people signed up and stuff. And those things really just crashed and burned. And I thought that was very interesting in terms of them trying to do outreach because they never really have done outreach in black Black churches and things, what they've tried to do is take Black pastors to bring them into that kind of, that kind of realm. So I think that's been the interesting piece of this part of the campaign. I think the other thing about Trump right now in the, in the campaign is that he doesn't, you know, his problem is, is that he doesn't have enough surrogates. I mean, basically all his surrogates are either in jail or been discredited, right? And so he's having to use family and, you know, friends, he can't use the same people that he was using in 2016. And it's interesting that I have not seen the faith-based people out as much. And I'm wondering if that's on purpose or if that's a way in which they are sort of trying to start to distance themselves from Trump. Mm. Do you think that has to do with his mishandling of the coronavirus pandemic? Absolutely. When we, or when I think about the faith vote or this particular type of faith vote that Trump is going after, evangelicals and others, I think of people like Sean Fuked or however you say his name, who is doing these ridiculous worship protests is how he he phrases mm-hmm. it. They're just super spreader events. Yeah. He's um, an and- asshole. Can I just say that right here? If anybody <laughs> yeah. knows him, please tell him that I said that. Because <laughs> I just think that this is the worst thing. You're out there jumping up and down and you're spreading the virus. And this is, you know, I was going to say, this is good that you bring him up, Scott Fuked or whatever the hell his name is. I, it's good that you bring him up because I'm thinking about him. I'm thinking about John McCarthy. Arthur in California, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the pastor who was in Louisiana, um, one of these other people, I'm Rodney Howard Brown, who got arrested at sort of during the beginning of the coronavirus because he was having services down in Tam- outside of Tampa. All of these people, they are of a piece, right? And I think that those are the kinds of people that we might see, you know, sort of coming out, not coming out, you know, explicitly for Trump, but are Trumpers because they don't believe that the virus exists and they don't want to wear masks, right? Or they don't want their liberties trampled upon and they still want to be able to have church services and everything. Not realizing that singing is one of the biggest ways that you spread the virus. It's not that anybody doesn't want you to worship God. It's just that they would like you to stay alive 
alive and not to kill anybody else in the process. But this, 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 um, how do I want to say it? This reckless disregard, the hard-headedness, the you know, thing of having that super spreader thing that Fuchs had. He had it in Nashville. He had one in Atlanta. You know where people were jammed up in this little shed. It, it's, it's a way to just thumb your nose at everything, but you don't pay until you, at, you end up being like Chris Christie in ICU for a week, and then you go, oh shoot, I should have worn a mask. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly disingenuous and incredibly dangerous and awful that he continues to just literally just fly around the country and do this mm-hmm. shit. He went to the protests at Portland and really and did this too. Yeah, well yeah, I he, also too we gotta we have to say what this really is, right? Right. It's it's about money. Mm-hmm. I mean the, most of the people who are doing this are doing it because if you don't have a regular church service, then you have to have a way to be able to do this. And Bethel Church, which Phil is part of, is is has a big had a big outbreak at their church at their school, and they had to close down. And so this manner in which they're doing it, it's like, oh shoot, the taps are turning off. We got to figure out a way to do this. Let me go out and just go spin around, and I can take an offering, and boom, you know. So yeah. And he's a Republican, so there you go. Yep. <laughs> I don't expect anything else different from this guy. <laughs> I mean, I just it just it just disgusts me. I mean, it really does. I just can't. I cannot believe that he, you you. This is the way he thinks that he's going to you know move the kingdom of God. All he's doing is moving some virus around the country. Exactly. Well, since you brought up Republicans, let's talk a little bit about the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. And what that signals for the future of the country, the future of the judiciary, it'll also dovetail into something that you sent to me that you wanted to talk about, which is that this this group called the Council for National Policy that we learned a little bit about. Let's start with what's in the headlines that's getting big headlines, which is the nomination process of Amy Coney Barrett. What are your thoughts in regards to her qualifications, the role of her, her faith community, and and that particular background that she has, as well as what what all of this means that they are pushing this through against the dying wish of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, you know, it's a shame that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, had, you know, made this dying wish. And then, of course, it was immediately trampled upon the next day. But, um, you know, I think there's what's interesting about Amy Coney Barrett is that, you know, she said before, I don't think that, you know, somebody should be nominated, you know, right at the end of, a, you know, of a presidential uh, run and we should wait mm-hmm. till the next one. But she was very willing to step up for this. So I think that says everything about her that you need to mm-hmm. know. Um, I'm not so much into getting into all of, the, all of the weeds about her. I will say this. I don't think that anybody who has been, you know, in the federal judgeship for less than three years is qualified to be, you know, uh, um, a Supreme Court justice. Whether or not she was a clerk with Kulia is no question to me. I think that this has been an interesting moment for Notre Dame because they want to claim her, but at the same time, it's putting a very big division in the university. You know, it's made mm-hmm. Father Jenkins look, you know, unfortunately stupid because he went and didn't wear a mask and got coronavirus after trying to, you know, be the person who was going to lead the way and open up his campus early. I mean, what's interesting to me, if we want to just talk about it, I want to talk about it like from an evangelical perspective for a minute. Sure. This, this woman is supposed to be the one you're waiting for and everything around her has fallen apart. 
I think that's the most fascinating thing about this whole thing is that, you know, she's supposed to be the person who, who you know, is going to go on the court and get rid of Roe and do all this other stuff. And in her wake, there's been nothing but destruction. There's been all these people who've gotten sick from coronavirus. You know, there's all these different things that have happened and, you know, and stuff. And, you know, people at her kid's school got sick. I'm like looking and I'm going, this doesn't seem to me to be an auspicious beginning to your, you know, your Supreme Court uh, run at all. And do you think that they would see some confirmation bias of, oh, this is just persecution, whether it's supernatural? Well, maybe, yeah, or and, and, yeah <laughs> I, of course, that's you how know? you could you could read it. But I could also just read yeah. it as, you know, maybe you ain't the one, but you know, <laughs> but she's probably going to be the one. And, and that's the, you know, that's the that's the part of it. And I think the question for me is, is that, you know, the way she answered questions this week, she was vague. She was deliberate. She didn't know the five things about the Constitution, the five things that the Constitution protects. I'm like, why do we have this person up here? I mean, I, I don't, I don't get it. I, I don't understand why she's there. But I understand why she's there from the perspective of, you know, this is, you know, somebody that will be able to do what, what a conservative, what conservatives want for the court. Okay, and I don't think that there's any any question or mistake that she won't be, you know, won't be down for Trump, won't be down for getting rid of all of these things. I'm personally appalled at the fact that the the case that she weighed in on that she basically said that it was okay to have somebody call you the n-word at work i'm like this is not somebody that i think that i can admire or look up to and would want to ever meet you know after having somebody take her taking ruth gabe bader ginsburg's place i'm just like i'm not really that interested in you and so i i don't have a lot of i have to say that i don't i want to say this as nice as i possibly can i don't think that she is the caliber of person that we need. But I think given the uh, lowering of the bar in the last four years, that it's probably as good as it's going to get for somebody like Trump. Hmm. Well, that, I think that, <laughs> that says it all right there. That speaks volumes about the level to which we've sunk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just think that's a, that's a you know, it is what it's a, is what it is moment to quote him. And I don't expect anything else. And I think, you know, the, the lament from Democrats and, and people who are liberals to think about all the things that could be lost. One of the things I would say about that, which you might be surprised about me saying is that, you know, Democrats did not pay attention to this. You know, Obama did not do what he needed to do. He did not figure, think about the court. He didn't think about the future. He didn't plan. He didn't prepare. Republicans are always thinking about the future. They have always been one step ahead. In this sense, they have done everything that they said that they were going to do. You have to admire that from a strategic standpoint, that this is what they've been gunning for the whole time and that they've been able to do it. And so, you know, my, my hat's off to you in, in this sort of, you know, Machiavellian way of you stuck to the program and you did what you were supposed to do. You know, and the problem is for liberals is that they can't really figure out how to do that. And that's really too bad. Yeah, that's a very good way to segue to this group called the the Council for National Policy. Yes. Not much is known about them, um, but they have been around for decades and they have been doing things like this long term planning mm -hmm. for conservative causes, including working to stack the judiciary, yeah. uh, fill the courts with conservative judges and all manner of other policy yeah. goals and really making that mm -hmm. making that a priority and seeing that through across administrations. Could you talk a little bit about this 
particular group and why this recent reporting by the post yeah. is so it's important I, I, i'm yeah it's important and uh, scary I'm, I'm not sure how to well, like, it's important scary and they've always yeah. been there and i think that you know this was founded by tim lahaye i mean i think people should get that you think about the left behind books but you know tim lahaye had his hands on a lot of stuff and I, I mean, one of the things about this has been conservative activists, you know, people like Jenny Thomas, you know, wife of, of the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and others who raise money all the time to support conservative causes. And there's people in bed with the Koch brothers and everybody else, you know, they've been behind this push for the judges. They had a plan and they knew how to get this plan from the 80s, okay? And so people haven't seen them because they kept a low profile, but these tapes that just came out kind to give you a sense of that and one of the people that was there was charlie kirk who um was part of turning point usa whose founder who had actually the person who had the money behind it whose name i'm going to forget um just died of coronavirus at the end of july right about the same week that uh herman cain did charlie kirk oh, wow. yeah you know is over you know turning point usa which they try to attack professors and stuff all the time they've come after me before but you know it's the, the ways in which they've put this is sort of like uh, a battle between, you know, good and evil. They are doing the good to keep, you know, this moral, this moral core of the country. But they were talked about in these tapes about actually ballot harvesting in churches by trying to get Black and Latino voters to give their, you know, ballots up so that they can harvest them in the churches and make sure that those ballots don't get there. You know, we're going to go to white evangelical churches, Hispanic and Asian churches and collect the ballots. I'm just I'm saying what Ralph Reed said. And Ralph Reed, as we know, was around with Faith and Freedom Coalition and and much earlier alongside um, Christian Coalition back in the early 90s. So this whole thing with with uh, with Council for National Policy is really important, because if we're looking at what ha what happens with Amy Coney Barrett, there's this group that's working behind the scenes to make sure that the door gets open for all of that, okay? And that the money that they're raising, this dark money, the worst thing that you could ever think that happened is not the thing that people think that happened. You know, everybody's worried about, you know, Roe versus Wade falling and everything else. You know, between gutting the Voting Rights Act and Citizens United, those are the two things that the worst the court has done. They're the worst. Because basically with Citizens United, that money got to be hidden. And so things like the Council of National Policy get to have, you know, tons of money at their disposal to make the kinds of moves that they want to, to make the kind of society that they want to see. And, and it, that is still being run by, you know, predominantly white men. So I think that right. we need to start paying attention to organizations like this. You know, they funnel a lot of money into groups like Focus on the Family or Family Research Council and others. And I think that people need to understand that it's not just about, um, you know, it's not just about the ways in which they work. It's about how they connect to power in a certain kind of way, you know. So, yeah. I think that, you know, this is something that needs to be on people's radar screen. Yeah. And how can we raise the profile of these sorts of stories when we've got, 
you know, Savannah Guthrie yesterday being like telling Trump you can't be the, crazy uncle the crazy on uncle, Twitter. Yeah. And that's, you know, like, yeah, I know, because that's the story that's going to get all the traction. But, right. you know, this is this is a big deal, you know, so you got to keep hammering at home. I think there needs to be, you know, sort of follow up stories that people write, you know, especially if you are in, you know, religion and politics. These are the kind of stories that we need to be thinking about, you know, when a when a post story comes out like this, that, that whole story didn't come out, you know, basically, we're not hearing all those tapes. We're not hearing everything. They just said, oh, we've got this, you know, um, videos that were provided, you know, of these meetings in February and three in August. I mean, you know, when are they going to put these videos out? I want to see them. You know, why aren't they doing that? I, I want to be able to see those videos and, you know, open this up so people can start to think about this and write about it. So that's one thing. And the second is, is to talk about this in our own circles where we're trying to say, OK, you need to pay attention to this because this is a really important part of the things that you see happening. And if we can keep hammering home, like, you know, the Council of National Policy is like at the foundational point for all of these kinds of issues and things that come out and very powerful people who you don't see in the news every day are a part of that, then you can get to see the, you know, the tentacles. And I'll use um, Jeff Charlotte's book, The Family, and the Netflix series as a way to think about, you know, the connections between the, you know, the National Prayer Breakfast and the family and the Council for mm -hmm. National Policy. All of these people, same people across the board, right? And we need to realize that it, it's a web instead of just this sort of like, you know, haphazard thing. And those webs were built back, in, you know, from the 70s on forward. Right. Yeah, and I think that's the greatest lie evangelicals ever told is that <laughs> these these networks don't exist. Yeah, no, they totally <laughs> exist. They totally yeah. exist. Yeah. If you're if you're up for talking about this, I'd love to also talk about your work under the um, with the scholar strike. Oh, sure. And how that ties into so many of the other things we've talked about, just relative to responses to racial injustice, how media covers things like strikes, how scholarship can inform the public. It, it sort of touches on all of those things that, that you've been working on for years. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about why you developed alongside, I believe, Dr. Gannon? Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. And I have to tell the story about how it happened because I think people sort of miss it. Um, it was the night that the NBA decided to go on strike and everybody was talking about it. And I sort of tweeted out, I'm like, well, if the, if the you know basketball players can do it, why can't professors do it? And people started writing back to me and saying, oh, that's great. You know, let's, let's do this. And so Kevin Gannon said, if you do something, I'll help you. And I was like, okay. And so Kevin and I got together on a, on a Zoom call later that night. And we came, I came up with the name Scholar Strike, and that's how we started. And I, you know, sort of thought at the time, I was like, okay, let's make this like a two-day thing where we take off from, um, you know, our regular teaching duties to talk about inequity, to talk about social justice, to talk about racial justice. Mm -hmm. and people can sign up and, you know, do some videos and we'll put them up online and we'll just kind of see where it goes. And it took off and it was like really crazy. And so we had to put this together in two weeks. We did it the day after Labor Day. And then the Wednesday, it crossed borders and went into Canada. So there was a Canada scholar strike. Uh, we have right now probably maybe a little over 50 videos that are up online on our YouTube page. We had a website and we'll probably do some more things. It's just that, you know, with the start of school and everything and this election cycle, we've kind of taken a little time to sort of step back and think about what we want to do next. I was really heartened to see 
how many schools and how many places people took time out to really talk about this. I think one of the more frightening things and more interesting things that happened about Scholar Strike was that how many professors actually were like, I'm learning so much. And I'm like, I'm scared that you didn't know anything already. So that says a lot <laughs> about what's going on. And I also, you know, have been troubled, frankly, by a couple of schools, one in Texas A&M and one Ole Miss, where people were, have been persecuted because of, you know, taking off the day for scholar strike. And, they're, you know, people saying, well, you can't do that. You have this, you know, work, you know, agreement that you have. And when we came up with the name scholar strike, we, we made it really clear that not everybody could strike strike but that there were ways in which you could participate. And I think this is another way in which we can see the universities, you know, and in the case of Mississippi, this was not just the university, it was actually the state controller, you know, getting on the person that they were coming after. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a lot of work, but it was really rewarding. And I think for me, it just dovetails into the kind of stuff that I've been working on with race and religion and everything else. To me, that was just another extension of it. I, I will say I'm, what was gratifying for me personally was to see how far it went, first of all. Second, that my own institution just left me alone, which was great. I mean, <laughs> I'm great. very grateful to them about that. And, um, you know, it was a way to, to, you know, to be thoughtful about things for a change. I think so much happened this summer and I find myself every summer having to deal with, you know, whether that's Mike Brown or the Zimmerman trial or all, you know, Philando Castile. I mean, it's just been relentless in the last six or seven years of my academic career. And while, you know, the nice guys are out there, you know, having, um, you know, vacation with their families and, and writing, I'm agonizing about what's happening in the black community. And for me, you know, because I teach all of this too, it's not separate from my academic life. It's my life, you know, yeah. and I have to think about it that way. Yeah. Speaking just as an observer, I'm very thankful that that you're out there doing the work that you're doing, providing your personal experience as well as your academic expertise to these very uh, relevant and timely questions and publishing books and doing all you you are in the media as well as everything through the scholar strike. And I really enjoyed being able to talk through just a little bit of what your upcoming work is as well as helping just contextualize some of the things that are happening in the news for us today. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find you online? Where can they pre-order your book or anything yeah. else you might want to mention? Oh, well, I'll, I'll tell you right now, you can find me on Twitter at Anthea Butler. Very easy. You can find me on Facebook as uh, I believe I'm Professor Anthea Butler on Facebook, uh, my page. Um, you can find me at AntheaButler.com. And you can find the book. It's up on Amazon right now. It's not on UNC yet, but it's definitely up on Amazon. White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. And that'll be out on March 22nd on Ferris and Ferris Press. That's going to be a great book. And I, I will make sure to link it so people can begin to pre-order it because that is not going to be one that anyone who's listening to this show will want to miss. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> Dr. Butler, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Blake. That'll do it for this week's episode. This episode was produced by Jake Lewis. The theme music is by Dave Lefevre and Jake Lewis. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate and review Powers and Principalities on Apple Podcasts and let others know about the show. 
You can also support the show by pre-ordering Dr. Butler's book from the link in the show notes and by signing up for a subscription to my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.com. Talk to you soon.